The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Are you a glass half full person or a glass half empty person? We all probably lean one way or the other, at least a little bit, kind of by nature. Some are more inclined to look at the bright side and to think about and speak and act with an optimistic bent, a positive energy. Kind of expects good things to happen. And other people are more like me. Somebody once told me, if you were ever the MC of a large meeting, you'd start by saying, welcome, glad you're here, but before we get started, let me tell you the top three things that are wrong with this meeting. It was funny because it was true, half empty, that's me. Hmm. Of course, I could spin this caricature another way, make another impression. Are you one of those pie in the sky, head in the clouds, out of touch with reality, glass half full people? Or are you a realist who knows history and reads the news? and is close to hurting people and has experienced life as a clay pot here in this fallen world full of affliction. Half empty is optimism. I could present it that way too, right? I mean, I could spin it either way. So which is right? Half empty, half full. Realistic, optimistic, which is it? What do you think? I think if you look around, our present American culture certainly values the optimistic, positive energy. We want to put a smiley face on everything. That's kind of how we want to present. But which is actually more fitting for a Christian? Our passage this morning, and I would argue the whole Bible gives us a carefully nuanced perspective on this tension between half empty, half full, this positive, negative, realistic. That that tension right there, it gives us a carefully nuanced perspective on that. In this moment, in this life, both are right. But one is more right than the other for a Christian. We Christians, we who are the church, we are at the same time a glass that is half full and half empty. But we are being moved towards the faucet, not the drain. We feel like some unmoved, some unseen hand is moving us towards the sink and, and we don't know, is it, is it like this or is it, We're being moved towards the faucet. And so both are right, but one is more right for us as Christians. This is is good news, a great news, a, a perspective for us that we alone can enjoy. We have good reason to live in abiding comfort and joy now and forever. Because God has promised and is fulfilling the promise, even as we speak. He's fulfilling the promise 
to deliver the church as a pure and spotless bride to his son, the great bridegroom. And God always keeps his word to himself. That's happening. And God wants to remind us of that and to encourage us with it and give us then good reason for great joy. And that's what we're going to consider this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm going to read verses 2 to 9, but most of our focus is going to be up through verse 7. But before I do that, a little bit of important background. This passage before us here is a major hinge in the whole book of 2 Corinthians. A hinge, a pivot point. Over the last four and a half chapters, we've been on a long and an important tangent, focusing more or less on gospel ministry, what it is and what it faces and how it is, this, this new covenant ministry that we've been entrusted with. And that tangent, it, it ends here this morning in this passage. And we are going to pick up with Paul where he left off when he started the tangent, back in the middle of chapter 2. He was explaining and defending his travel plans and in particular a pretty stern letter that he wrote to Corinth instead of traveling to see them. He had to write a letter that confronted the whole church on its sin and how it had been far too lenient and far too accommodating towards a particular sinful man in the congregation who had attacked Paul and therefore Paul's message and God. The church had just kind of like allowed that. And so then now the church's sin became the main problem and Paul had to write a, a pretty stern letter to them confronting all of them and calling them for their good to repentance, to, to cinch them back up to himself and to cinch them back up to God. And he sent that hard letter through his friend, in the hands of his friend Titus from Ephesus. Titus goes off with the letter to Corinth, and then Paul left Ephesus and went on to a place called Troas, and then eventually to Macedonia, constantly expecting, waiting, waiting, waiting for Titus to come back with news about what had happened when he took the letter there. How'd they receive it? That's what we're going to pick up this morning. Closing out this, this long section about gospel ministry and then and resuming with this discussion about Paul and, and this letter. So it's kind of a hinge. It's a little bit, a little bit of both. But we're going to talk in this passage, through this passage, about what's kind of driving Paul and driving our hope, our reason for joy. So that's where we're going this morning. Let me read the passage and then draw two observations from this. Second Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 2. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all of our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me. 
so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that really you suffered no loss through us. 2 Corinthians, down through verse 9. As I said, most of our focus is going to be on the, up through verse 7. We'll pick up with this next week, of course. Here's the first observation of two. We are able to live in and live out comfort and joy in a world full of affliction. We're able to live in, to, to experience, and then to live out, to display comfort and joy in a world full of real affliction. This is a privilege given to Christians. The ability to live in, in both of these at the same time. So let, let's see what that is here. I'm, I'm going to approach this passage by, by looking at Paul and what Paul's going through. And we're going to notice where he is and then we'll kind of come around to this point at, at the end. The, seeing first the real affliction that is in his life. In verse 2, he's kind of connecting us back to verses 11 and 13 of chapter 6, which was itself a, a summary plea, an exhortation, because of the Corinthians' coldness towards Paul. They're holding him at arm's length. They, there's something he talks about. There, there's some blockage in the relationship between us, but it's not on my end, it's on your end. There's something blocking this you guys inside. And that's a problem because I'm God's messenger to you. You, sh you shouldn't be holding me off. You sh there's no reason to treat me like that. My heart is wide open to you, he said in verse 11. And conversely, so yours should be towards me. Well, again here, that's the summary. Make room in your hearts for us, verse 2. He's picking up with that again. I have done nothing wrong. I've not wronged anyone. I've corrupted no one. He's not a false teacher. He's not led anybody astray. I've taken advantage of no one. He hasn't exploited any relationships, not abused money in any way. There are echoes here all throughout of things that have been discussed before, things that have come up, and things that he knows. He's refuting specific claims, specific suspicions about himself that he knows are in the water at Corinth. Maybe out loud, maybe in quiet whispers, this is the attitude of a good portion of the church towards him still at the moment, which is why he writes it. He knows there's something in them that is like this against him. And his point is, you're treating me wrongly with prejudice, and that should stop. And there's more that he's going to have to say about that. If we were to look ahead, coming up chapter 8 and following, he's going to talk to them about giving for the sake of the, the wider body. And they're a wealthy church in a wealthy city, and they have been less than vigorous about that. Though he's called them to it, they haven't really responded. And then in 10 and following, he's going to again have to deal with the fact that they don't really think that he's that good of an apostle that he's that effective and that powerful. They're, they're not really for him, but they are way eager to welcome and accept and open their hearts to all his opponents. 
That's still to come in this book. That's the situation Paul is in in regards to this church. This church in Corinth is frustratingly broken. Man, it's just kind of a grind dealing with issue after issue. If you were to think about 1 Corinthians, issue after issue, it's just kind of what's still going on here. Even though, yes, Titus brought good news. I mean, that's here too, right? We read Titus brought good news. They, in some way, verse 7, they responded about Paul positively. They they have a longing for him, a, a mourning, a zeal for him. So, yeah, there's some good news here. But Paul, knowing that, still wrote what we just looked at and is still about to write what we're going to see. It is a mixed bag. Disappointing. His standing there is tenuous with them and difficult. Well, what about apart from the church in Corinth? How's that going for Paul? Well, worse, actually. So considering the negative side, look at the end of verse 4. He mentions all our, that is my, affliction such as, specifically, when I came to Macedonia, even there I had no rest. Affliction at every turn, in every way. Fighting without and fear within. Externally there's conflict. He doesn't say exactly what. Perhaps there's church conflict there in the places that he visits. Most likely there's also some sort of public opposition, some persecution. As we've seen, wherever Paul goes, something happens that's, that's complicated and hard. He faced a lot of opposition in Ephesus, and on and on and on. It probably has some sort of conflict from the people out there, and he certainly has, in his heart, fear. Difficulty with what's going on out there, and most likely this lingering question, Titus has not come back from Corinth yet. That can't be good news. Titus has not come back from Corinth yet. That must be bad news. I wish I hadn't written that letter. Bummer. I probably ruined that. That's a fear weighing on him on the inside. He's got inner turmoil and all this outer conflict. Taken all together, Paul's life is a glass half empty. Full of trouble, affliction at every turn as he travels and ministers everywhere. He is a clay pot facing calamities and hardships and beatings and shipwrecks like we just saw in chapter 6. And he's still facing that. He's right in the middle of it as he writes. And that's what we need to see this morning. He's right in the middle of it as he writes. How would you naturally feel right in the middle of that? How would anyone naturally feel in such a situation? Slandered by your friends, attacked by your enemies, physically threatened and emotionally stretched. How would you feel? What would your face show? Paul is overflowing with joy. What? Overflowing with joy. 
in the middle of his afflictions, not after they're over. Not because he's unaware of them. He's the one who delineated them for us. He's completely clear about his situation, how at every turn, trouble and joy simultaneously, hand in hand, accompany him. As he deals with this church that's doing him wrong, as he deals with a public that is really complicated and hostile, and as, as he talks to people continually expressing for them, this, this is the problem. He is himself sitting in joy, and it is overflowing out of him, such that the people, even the people to whom he is speaking hard truths, must sense from him some sort of positive smile on the face, beaming like a proud papa approach. Paul writes, make room in your hearts. I haven't done anything wrong. Not, not that I'm trying to condemn you. He quickly clarifies it, beginning of verse 3. This, I'm not trying to bust your chops on this. It's true, i got to say it. But I'm not trying to condemn you. In fact, I've already said it. My heart is big, wide open for you. Which is like saying... I deeply love you. I'm, I'm acting towards you with, with a strong affection. There is nothing that is reserved, that is cautious, that is standoffish. There's a problem here. That, that's not his posture at all. His posture is, ah! I mean, there's a problem here, but ah! He is exuberant. And open. I'm ready to live with you and die with you. My heart is wide open to you. And they would certainly sense I'm acting with great boldness towards you. Frankness, clarity. I am proud of you. He's proud of them. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort and I'm overflowing with joy. This is exuberant, clear expression of positive it's comfort and joy coming out of him such that they have to sense this. Overflowing with joy. And when he heard the encouraging news about their response, just to be real clear on this, because my mind's right, it might go here, well, that, that, clearly he's overflowing with joy. Clearly he's proud of them because of how they responded positively. Well, in part, yes, but notice carefully he heard the good news about how they had turned to him and mourned for him and zeal for him. He's probably kind of exaggerating those words because of, he knows their posture is a little bit standoffish. But look at the end of verse 7. So that I rejoiced still more. Not began to rejoice, rejoiced still more. I was already over, overflowing with joy in all my affliction. But like anybody, good news is encouraging. So I'm even more filled with joy that I heard some positive step. That didn't cause it, that added to it. He heard the encouraging news and was filled with joy even more so, but he was already filled with comfort and joy. And this is what we need to see here. Paul, the model Christian, is living before us in a way that is not just supposed to be some extreme version of Christianity. It's supposed to be Christianity. 
This is what we're after, and this is what we as privilege are offered. To live, yeah, sorrowing, but ever rejoicing. Both at the same time. This is the Christian life here in Paul. This is what we're seeing. He is a follower of Christ, and we are to follow him as he follows Christ. And so the invitation, the, the offer to us, the thing for us to consider this morning is, we're going to talk about how that can be in a moment, but that that can be. It's the first point. This is the Christian life. Both are right. One's more right. Sorrowing, but ever rejoicing, overflowing in joy. How? We'll come to that. But do you want that? This, as I said earlier, I, I am a glass half empty, and it is, it is difficult for me to say, I am equally a glass half full, and say that with a straight face. I, I know, I, I tilt. And so do you, one way or the other. Can you put your weight on both feet and maybe then tilt your head? I don't know how to express it exactly, but they're both right. We have to read the news and be realists. And, and we, we, we cannot smile and cheer in the midst of the house of mourning. We've got to be able to sit in both those places at the same time. But one's more right. There, there should be a tilt in us because, we'll talk about why, but because... You can probably guess some of the why. Do you want this? This is what's modeled for us and what's offered to us. And I think something that just kind of resonates in us, oh, I want to be a person who can face the realities of life and does not need them all to go away before I overflow in joy. Don't you want to be that person? I sure do. That's the Christian life, and it's what we're, we're offered and called to, either to be a witness to others, not just for ourselves, but either to be a witness to others or to be an encouragement to them, to be a witness to others. Perhaps, if you think about this, that's the only environment in which anybody would think to ask you for the reason for the hope that's within you. If you're healthy, wealthy, and wise, everybody knows the reason for the hope that's in you. You're healthy, wealthy, and wise. No questions needed. I'd be happy and joyful and at comfort too if I was healthy, wealthy, and wise like you are. It's only a question that is puzzling, that is, that is asked maybe out loud or wondered and, and observed closely. Why is this person in all of his affliction, in all of her trouble, slandered by friends, attacked by the public, overflowing in joy and full of comfort? What? Why is that? That's the context in which God may place you and then calls you to live. I want you to live in both. I want you to be realistic about the trouble and overflow with joy. That's the ground for witness. And it's also the ground for encouragement because particularly in the church, it could well be that some other brother, some other sister, some other family is saying like, I'm seeing the affliction and I'm hard pressed and then we, alongside of them, can be the encouragement. Yeah, I'm seeing that too, but I'm also seeing something else. And we overflow with joy onto them as an encouragement. 
We are not prisoners of the circumstances of our times. That is a great privilege. And boy, I mean, I'm speaking in the year 2020, right? I'm ready for a lot of 2020 to be over. What, what used to be kind of a joke is, you know, this and then this and then this and this. It's like playing bingo. Like, what disaster are we going to get this month or this week? It used to be funny. It's not so funny anymore. I'm really plenty tired of it, frankly. A lot of, a lot of people are. But I'm just going to suspect something. Not really. I know this. But I'm going to suspect something that God is providentially at work in that to create an environment in which we could be a unique people. That we could, in the midst of this year, be sorrowing and much affliction could be our reality and we could be overflowing with joy. Unlike how 2019 would have raised the questions, that 2020 is raising the questions. Why aren't you as irritated, frustrated, angry, despondent, heartbroken, etc., as I am. Oh, you actually think the vaccine's coming. No, that's not why. Oh, it's because the stimulus check's coming. No, that's not why either. It's because your party won the election, or you think there's court cases that are going to win your party. No, that's not why either. Actually, none of those reasons are why. Let me tell you why I have this hope within me that you're sensing overflowing out of me. That's a question and a conversation that could not have happened in 2019 like it could in 2020 or maybe in 2021. God's at work. God's doing something there. And he's offered to us a privilege and given us an opportunity if we would just take him up on that and be the people that we're called to be, a people who are half empty and half full but leaning. Sorrowing but ever rejoicing and overflowing in it, comfort and joy, not just at Christmas and not just when the problems go away, but when the problems come. So do you want that? For yourself, for witness to others around you, and for encouragement of other brothers and sisters who are struggling with it, do you want that? Do you want to be that kind of person? The second observation explains some of the how, the good reason for it. So here's the second observation. We were able to live such lives of comfort and joy, we're able to do that, because of who our God is and what he's doing. Because of who our God is and what he's doing. Up through verse 5, Pardon me, through verse 5, Paul has just been relating to us this collection of circumstances and how he's responded amidst them. And if, if we were to just read just that far, we, we might be tempted to think, well, yep, Paul's bold and proud and comforted and overjoyed because he's a glass half full sort of person by nature. He's, he's an optimist. Sure, okay. But in fact, there is another reason that he gives us explicitly. Verse 6. All the trouble, Macedonia, everywhere I go, at every turn, but God. The Bible has that phrase sometimes, but God, and it's, it's usually a good one. Technically, in this 
in the original here, it doesn't actually put it like that. Here it translated woodenly, stiffly, bad English. But the one who comforts the downcast comforted us, God. You wouldn't write an English sentence like that, but it does put a different spin on it. It makes something like a little more dominant. It, it almost like gives God a name here. The one who comforts the downcast. It almost is like, oh, that's who he is. He is the one who comforts the downcast. That's how he wants himself to be known. I'm the one who comforts the downcast. So in our minds, of course, God could and does describe himself in many ways, but in this context, we're talking about how is it that Paul is afflicted and overjoyed? It's because the one who comforts the downcast meets him. That's who he is, the one who comforts, and probably should remind us of chapter one because that Paul actually, if you recall this letter, verse three, that's where he started talking about God, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our affliction, that's pretty similar to here. Paul's mind's gone back to the beginning. So back there, he, he talks about, he elaborates on, on comforting, and the word that's pretty close to encouraging. It, it's elaborated on back there, but here he gives us a little bit of a different spin. That's God, a father who wants his children comforted encouraged, uplifted. Like if you're a parent, you would say, of course. What parent, what good parent, you, you, you see your kid in some way kind of, kind of broken, some, somehow like down or, uh, in some way you kind of think, I want to help that if I can. How can, I, how can I lift that up? That, that's instinctive for a parent. Where did we get that? From God. That's, that's God's nature to look at his people and say, of course I'm the one who comforts the downcast. I want to do that. Okay, so how? How does he do that? Well, lots of ways. Something in particular here. What's, what's he got here? It's his nature to comfort his people in the midst of their afflictions. How does he do that? What's emphasized here? Well, what does it say? The one who comforts, comforted Paul by sending to him Titus, his friend. That's what he said, by the coming of Titus. But that's not just about, hey, my buddy's in town now. That's, that's encouraging. That's not what that's about. Titus brought word. It's not just his coming, but also the message that he came with, what he told me happened in Corinth. What happened when that letter and the, the letter carrier arrived? Well, they didn't throw Titus out. They, in fact, welcomed him in and received him as Paul's messenger with that letter, and they comforted Titus rather than ostracizing him. And they heard the message, and they changed. We can read about that. We did read about that in chapter 2, and we'll see more about it next week. They, they confronted the man, which was the problem in the church. They, they addressed it like they should have, and something happened. And, you know, what do you know? 
Is this how it happened? What do you know? I mean, I wrote a letter, and they read that, and they changed their minds. And it, like, what a coincidence. Lo and behold, something just, they saw it differently this time. And they decided instead to confront this guy and address it and fix the problem. And they then changed their attitude towards you, my messenger Titus, and even towards me. They actually kind of like me a little bit now. What, what a nice thing. Well, wonders never cease. Is that it? No. That is what happened. But that's not how it happened. What happened, what Paul's encouraged to hear happened, what adds to his joy is nothing random. What he hears from Titus is of a divine work. God encouraged Paul by sending him word about a divine work in the church in Corinth. Of his work in his church. And that's what's needing to be focused on here. We, we can't take any encouragement for something random that happened somewhere to somebody. We can't bank on that. But what we can lean on and are meant to lean on is the character of God and he shows it. He shows it to us here. He shows himself to be faithful to his promise to build his church even when you can't see it and you can't see it happening. See, this letter came to them, and as Paul writes in verse 9, they were grieved into repenting with a godly grief, not a worldly grief. He says it was a godly grief, a grief according to God. They were moved to repentance as God opened their eyes to show them their sin, to show them where they were wrong, to show them what they should be. His spirit moved to convict them of sin and to show them righteousness and to warn them of judgment and moved them. God gave to them repentance, that is, a change of their inner perspective. Yet yeah, it led to some changes in some behaviors. But first, repentance is a change of perspective so that you see something differently. It's a change of the heart, which Paul, and we should know, they did not do for themselves. Paul did not do to them. God did. He used Paul's letter, but God, by his Spirit, convicted and grieved the Corinthians into repenting and then showed Paul that because he wanted to comfort Paul in all of his affliction and bring to Paul joy. His fingerprints, his comforting fingerprints are all over that as he works in the church and then works to carry word of that to Paul in the midst of his afflictions. He's showing Paul, I'm the one who keeps my promise. I said I will make my dwelling among them and I will walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Let me tell you through Titus how I'm doing that in Corinth. I said that I would be a father to them and they would be my sons and my daughters and I would not let them run away. I, I disciplined those I love and I disciplined them and I brought them back. Let me show you that through Titus to encourage you. 
That's what Paul sees. That's what's comforting and encouraging to him. A, a host of problems remain. There are, there are half a dozen sticky issues to resolve yet. But what is thrilling and encouraging and what adds on top to Paul's joy is that this problem has been resolved. And in that is the evidence that God is shepherding his people and will do so all the way to the end. That's what Paul's looking at. That's the eyes of faith. And that's the key to how you live in both, with the weight on both feet but leaning one way or the other. There's a lot to look at that's hard and there's a lot to look at that's good. But in the end, are you headed towards the faucet or towards the drain? Which do you think? Which is true? God promised to his son a pure and spotless bride. That's us. Which means, as much as you can look around here and say, oh my goodness, and you can do that for sure. As much as you can look around your own life and say, oh my goodness, and you can do that for sure. You also can and must do this. Oh my goodness, comma. However, oh goodness, you have to say that. Sometimes God will drop a little bit of evidence, a little bit of a, he'll pull back the covers a little bit, show you behind the curtain like he did for Paul about what's going on in Corinth. I have not left them. Yeah, they got problems, but I have not left them. Watch, I'll fix this. And so Paul, you, and so Christian, you, can look at trouble and troubled people in the world, your own life, the brother or sister sitting right next to you, and say, trouble, however, God at work. And you can be confident and bold and proud and hard, heart, heart, heart wide open in hope, overflowing with joy in the midst of trouble, because God is. And he is at work. And he is at work to deliver a church pure, spotless, free of trouble, free of sin, away from all and any sort of affliction such that at every turn you never meet it anymore ever again. That's what's going on. Well, there's a coronavirus going on. There's, a, there's an economic depression going on. And there's, there's a disastrous election going on. Nope, that's actually not going on. That's not going on. It is a little bit here in a moment in this little place. What's going on is God claiming a people, dwelling among them, walking among them to father them to wholeness and beauty and glory such that you and I and we all together will be the only things that are in the presence of God. There will be no more sin and no more tear, no more nothing. That's real. That's what's going on. Even while there is much to be sorrowful about. We're both we're leaning. That's the basis. That's the reason that the Christian 
can know and can overflow with comfort and joy and, and a positive bent. The rest of the world really wants that too. And all they're left with is a denial. I don't see the problems. Or a, a clinging to and a grasping for and a fighting for some sort of a hope that's tied to this. That should not lead us to a finger-wagging condemnation of them. It should lead us to a bit of a sorrowful approach because we've got something hopeful that we could offer to them. But they'll never ask if they don't see it in us first. That's convicting to me. I, I want to think more about comfort and joy all year round, not just at Christmas. This should be the atmosphere of our lives, the atmosphere of our church, finding joy in God and what he is doing. He's fathering us towards wholeness to present us as a pure and spotless bride to the Son. Reminding you of that is the primary way he wants to comfort you as downcast people. Not just massage your feelings, but to speak the truth to your mind about what's going on. And that's a good reason to be filled with comfort and joy. So let me pray that God would press that into us here now. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would not skip our minds and move directly to our, our feelings and in some way just kind of give us a, a positive atmosphere or, or put a blanket over things. Don't, don't do that. Father, please address our minds with truth and cause us to see. And then, Spirit of God, will you take that truth and with it transform our minds and renew us as people. And cause us to be like Christ who for the joy set before him endured the cross and cause us to be like Paul who in the midst of all his afflictions overflowed with joy. Cause us to be a people who see who you are and what you're doing and live in and live out comfort and joy. Thank you for that privilege. Make it real. Father, your people. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.